Secretary of State Antony Blinken is in Tel Aviv calling for a pause in the fighting between Israel and Hamas to allow humanitarian aid into Gaza. It's Friday, November 3rd. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, a New York jury finds Sam Bankman freed guilty of corruption from the collapse of his cryptocurrency business, FTX. Also this hour, 25 years after the Northern Ireland peace accords, the UK is stopping some prosecutions of crimes related to the troubles. And Dorchester's Frank Baker is nearing the end of his run on the Boston City Council. He's become known as an outspoken opponent of progressives. It became about we have the votes, we're going to say and do an act whatever way we want, and everybody else is going to shut up. I refuse to shut up. In sports, Bruins win, sunny in the 50s today, and the clocks fall back one hour this weekend. It's 7.01, now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is in Tel Aviv today as Israel intensifies its military operation in Gaza. The Biden administration has been pushing the Israeli government to allow for temporary pauses in fighting to provide civilians safe passage out of the besieged enclave and to deliver humanitarian aid to the region. Mahal Albana, an aid worker from New Jersey, was able to leave Gaza, but she still worries about her family there. can't even allow myself to feel relieved because I have family still in Gaza, so I'm kind of worried. Uh, but I am happy that I'm out. Security has been stepped up amid Friday prayers in Jerusalem, which often creates tensions between Palestinian civilians and Israeli police. A New York City jury has found the former crypto mogul Sam Bankman-Fried guilty of securities fraud, money laundering, and five other criminal counts. NPR's David Gura reports Bankman-Fried masterminded a conspiracy to steal billions from customers of FTX, the cryptocurrency exchange he started. It took just five hours for the jury to reach its verdict after a month-long trial that included testimony from his co-conspirators. These were Sam Bankman-Fried's former deputies, who were also some of his closest friends. They cooperated with the U.S. government, and they told the court Bankman-Fried directed them to funnel billions of dollars from FTX to a trading firm Bankman-Fried also controlled called Alameda Research. Once it was there, he used that money to make risky investments and to buy luxury real estate for himself, his family, and his friends. Bankman-Fried could spend the rest of his life in prison. He's scheduled to be sentenced in March. David Gura, NPR News, New York. The federal trial of former Louisville police detective Brett Hankinson is underway. Roberto Roldan with Louisville Public Media reports Hankinson is accused of violating the civil rights of Breonna Taylor, her boyfriend, and her neighbors during a deadly raid in 2020. After settling on a 16-person jury pool, prosecutors laid out their arguments. They said Hankison fired blindly through Taylor's covered window and patio door. Some of his bullets passed through a shared wall and into an occupied neighboring unit. Jurors heard from one of her neighbors who woke up to bullets flying through her apartment. She was pregnant at the time and rushed to lay on top of her young son until the shooting stopped. Prosecutors planned to show that Hankison fired out of anger without identifying a clear target. Hankison's attorneys say he was shooting at a specific target and he was trying to protect his fellow officers after Taylor's boyfriend opened fire. Brianna Taylor was killed. For NPR News, I'm Roberto Roldan in Louisville. 
This is NPR News in Washington. I'm Rupa Shinoy. This is WBWAR in Boston. President Biden and the First Lady plan to visit Maine today. They'll meet with families of the Lewiston mass shooting victims. 18 people were killed and 13 others were wounded last week at a bar and a bowling alley in the city. The Bidens plan to pay respect to the victims and meet with first responders during today's visit. The state may impose time limits for families staying in its emergency shelter system. Governor Healy tells the Boston Herald her administration is considering the option as the system hits capacity. This comes as the state will no longer guarantee shelter space despite its right-to-shelter law. Earlier this week, a judge allowed the state to move forward with a wait list for families seeking emergency shelter. State police believe the man suspected of killing a nurse from Whitman fled to his native Kenya. He's wanted for the murder of 31-year-old Margaret Mbitu. Investigators say her body was found yesterday in a car at Logan Airport. She'd been reported missing on Monday. Investigators say the two knew each other and the killing was not random. 34 service dogs will graduate this weekend from the Monty Tech Vocational School in Fitchburg. WBUR's Josie Guarino reports these specially trained dogs are now in higher demand than ever. It takes roughly two years and $50,000 to breed, train, and match a service dog with a veteran in need or someone with a disability. Kara Malad is with Needs, the nonprofit that connects people with service dogs. I get hundreds of emails from people telling me that children are struggling with anxiety or disabilities really related to their lives being disrupted. The pandemic also disrupted the training. Prisons stopped allowing the service dog training program run by inmates. So this latest graduating class of service dogs dressed in their own caps and gowns in person for the first time since the pandemic makes it a special occasion. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Josie Guarino. It's 7.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.gov. The Bruins beat the Toronto Maple Leafs 3-2 in a shootout last night at the Garden. The Bees will visit the Detroit Red Wings tomorrow. Sunny today and in the mid-50s. Cloudy overnight, it'll be in the 40s. Mostly cloudy tomorrow in the upper 50s. Partly sunny on Sunday and near 60. It's 40 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. WBUR supporters include the Langloth Foundation, supporting justice, equity, and opportunity for all people to foster and sustain safe and healthy communities. Learn more at langloth.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep in Jerusalem. 
And I'm Amy Martinez in Culver City, California. In the weeks of war between Israel and Hamas, many colleges and universities have hosted both civil and uncivil discourse. There are peaceful protests and vigils and also threats of violence against Jewish students and members of Palestinian student groups. So how can college officials manage both free speech and student safety? Ebony Pringle is the senior vice president for student life at Kent State University. It's the same school where in 1970, four unarmed students were killed by National Guardsmen during protests during the Vietnam War. War. Professor Pringle, there have been three events on your campus uh, so far, a protest for Palestine on the K, Hillel with a vigil, and the student government meeting with leaders of both. Uh, how did those three go? Yeah, thank you, and thank you for having me this morning. You know, our institutional core values have guided all of our actions here at Kent State, and, and as you mentioned, Kent State has a long history of activism. And all forms of activism at Kent State have led to sustained and transformational change, uh, such as the formation of our Department of Africana Studies due to the act activism of black United students and our Department of Peace and Conflict Studies. Uh, civil discourse and activism is in the Kent State DNA. It's at the core of who we are. Um, so our students and the events that you mentioned have been continuing that tradition, engaging in civil discourse, while also demonstrating respect and kindness and purpose. And it has resulted in peaceful dialogue. And I have to say, I've been extremely proud of our community during this very, very difficult time. Our students have expressed concerns. They've demonstrated their, their freedom of expression and at the same time have respected their, their fellow students and the community members who may have a different opinion. So it's been challenging to hear the stories, but at the same time, it's been very positive to see how our community has responded. Sometimes free speech becomes passionate. It becomes angry and loud. How difficult is it, Professor, for a university to get a feel for when it could also maybe threaten public safety? Yeah, great question. You know, our president welcomed 4,000 new students to campus, highlighting the tension between these core values and, and what you just talked about. Um, you're right, there is this tension that can be created when we hear from others things that we don't necessarily agree with. Uh, but he played the song uh, uh, by Farrell Sanders, The Creator Has a Master Plan. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but there's a piece of the song where the dissonance can feel a bit unsettling, hmm. but it perfectly illustrates the tension between these core values. And what we have been uh, talking to our students about for a number of years under President Dykin's leadership is really this tension is necessary for all of us to be able to grow and develop and learn from each other. And at what? the same time, well, what, I'm wondering, so what would be the threshold then for the university to maybe have to escalate a response uh, if, if something were to get uh, dicey? Well, as we've talked about, you know, what we've seen on our campus is that students are working together and they're espousing our core values. Yeah. If we were to see any um, acts of aggression, we have our public safety team here at all times and they work closely with us to support our students' safe demonstration of core values. We haven't seen that on our campus. What we have seen are our students peacefully engaging in dialogue and expressing their views and they've been respectful to each other. They've shared their thoughts and they've worked together to try and make sure our community understands the difficulties. Have you heard any student concerns? 
Absolutely. I mean, there's obviously a national dialogue around safety and our students are noticing and hearing across campuses that, you know, there are, have been incidents of violence. So they have expressed concerns. And what we've done is worked with our public safety team to ensure our students that they are okay. safe and we can do the best that we can in working with them to make sure of that. Ebony Pringle is the interim senior vice president for student life at Kent State University. Thank you very much. Thank you. Much of the news this week is focused on Israel's attack in Gaza and civilians' desperate efforts to get out. The Israeli writer Yossi Klein Halavi is still thinking of the attack by Hamas on the war's first day. You know, the world has moved on, right? October 7th, all right, get over it. Get over it, Jews. I'm still processing what happened on October 7th. I still can't believe that a thousand Jews were dismembered and burned alive within the state of Israel. In fact, Israel says attackers killed some 1,400 people. Halavi talked about this in his home office here in Jerusalem. The back wall of his apartment is glass, and when we arrived, we could just see the landscape and the last of the light. We're looking at a rocky valley with very little in it, and then on the other side is Palestinian it's areas. Uh, two Palestinian villages, and you've got the separation barrier between this neighborhood, French Hill, and the next hill. That's the beginning of the West Bank. Across and where the we valley. are now is Jerusalem. Is Jerusalem. Um, this is the, literally the last row of houses in Jerusalem. We were in a part of Jerusalem that Israel captured in a 1967 war and later annexed, though other nations have never recognized that change. Halavi once wrote a book called Letters to My Palestinian Neighbor. He literally has some. Palestinians live in the apartment next door and upstairs. He says they all get along, mostly by avoiding conversations about the news. I've been working in, on coexistence issues for many years, and so it's very moving for me to actually be, be living day to day in that kind of environment and to see that it's possible. I wonder, though, if that gets at a challenge, though. There's the matter of day-to-day -day cooperation, which it sounds like you're working on and doing okay. But then there is the fundamental question of... Of the conflict. That takes us back to the, how did we get to this moment? That's one essential question. And the other essential question is, how do we get out of this? In considering both questions, Halavi thinks about narratives, the Palestinian story and the Jewish one. He believes in the story of Jews returning to their ancient homeland, and he moved here himself from Brooklyn, where he had grown up in a family of Holocaust survivors. Halavi also believes in the Palestinian story of people in their native land. The Palestinian story is powerful. They were here. And it's true that Palestinian national identity uh, emerged in the last century, but every people has its own trajectory of, when, of how it defines itself. And yes, it's true that the Jews came here, but there's one word that's left out. We came back. The writer still believes in a two-state solution, an independent homeland for Palestinians. He's a vocal critic of Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, who does not. Halavi spent much of this year protesting the right-wing government's plan to weaken the judiciary. Yet he supports the government's determination to destroy Hamas now. Look, it's true. Hamas is not an ideology. It's a theology. It's a theology of extermination. We cannot live 
with a genocidal regime on our borders. As you know very well, a lot of people on the other side of this argument are using the word genocide Yes. to talk about Israeli attacks in Gaza, which Israel says are targeted at Hamas, but as Israel acknowledges, civilians are in the way, and Palestinian authorities have marked thousands of civilian deaths, hundreds of thousands of people relocated. Yes. What is the moral calculation there as you see it? First of all, there is no moral calculus in terms of numbers and suffering. And the suffering that we are inflicting on Gaza is a historic tragedy. The question is, is it a crime? It would be a crime if it was deliberate. The difference between intentional murder and unintentional murder in war is the difference between war as tragedy and war as barbarism. Critics of Israel will, of course, say, you know, if you drop a bomb on a refugee camp, you intended to get somebody in a tunnel underneath who's a Hamas leader, but you knew there was an apartment building in the way. Does that count as an intentional killing? What should Israel do? We've told the civilians, leave. Should we allow Hamas to hide behind its human shields? Hamas can cross the border, massacre us, and then go back because the international community is going to protect them and their civilian shields are going to protect them. There is no good way to fight this war. If we are going to have any future, if the Jewish people around the world is going to trust Israel as a safe refuge, we need to reestablish our ability to deal with genocidal enemies. And so anyone telling me right now, you have to understand civilian casualties, and my response is, I'm heartbroken, and I understand that I'm inf I am inflicting terrible misery, and I take responsibility for that, and I believe we have no choice but to continue pushing on until we destroy the Hamas regime. You put that in the first person. I am inflicting. Yes, of course, of course. Look, Israel, this is a very intimate society. When we speak about Israel, there's no emotional distance. There's also, there's also no practical distance. What happens politically happens personally. Also, it's a democratic society. It's, it's, <laughs> I, I'm responsible for what happens here. You know, the essence of Zionism was to make Jews responsible for their fate. So that Jewish history wasn't just what others do to us, but what we do to ourselves, for ourselves, for good and for bad. We're going to reassume power, our ability to defend ourselves, and we'll take the moral consequences. Power always has moral consequences. Yossi Klein Halavi is a writer and a senior fellow at the Shalom Hartman Institute. He spoke with us at his home on the far eastern edge of Jerusalem. We are hosting Morning Edition from different cities around the Mideast this week to get different perspectives on the conflict here, and you can find more coverage and differing views at npr.org slash Updates. This is NPR News. Good morning. You've made it to the end of the week with WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, we hear from people in the diverse Israeli port city of Akko who are trying to understand how to continue to coexist amid Israel's war with Hamas. It's 719. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org cars.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Solar Gardens, offering solar subscriptions that allow households to access the benefits of solar power through off-site solar fields. Learn more at solargardensma.com. Metro West Subaru, where same-day and next-day service appointments are available, service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. And Ocean State Job Lot, partnering with customers to help veterans stay warm by giving coats to those in need. OceanStateJobLot.com. I'm Robin Young. After decades of progress, life expectancy in the U.S. is falling. Lives are being cut short by diabetes, heart disease, and other chronic illness. A lot of the experts that we talked to described our situation when it comes to chronic diseases as like a not-so-quiet pandemic. It, It has been brewing. That's here and now. Listen today at noon on 90.9 WBUR. Clear skies today. It'll be in the mid-50s. Some clouds move in tonight and it falls to the mid-40s. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy and near 60. Sunday, partly sunny and near 60 again. And remember, that's the day the clocks fall back an hour. It's 40 degrees in Boston. New York Times book critic Dwight Garner comes to City Space Tuesday, November 7th to discuss his memoir, The Upstairs Delicatessen. Join us for a conversation about the joys of eating and reading. Get details and tickets at wbur.org slash events. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Participant, who brought audiences spotlight presenting Radical, based on the true story of a middle school teacher in a Mexican town inspiring students to dream, starring Eugenio Derbez, now playing in theaters. From the law firm Cooley LLP, with offices in the U.S., Europe, and Asia, Cooley advises entrepreneurs, investors, financial institutions, and established companies around the world where innovation meets the law. From Fisher Investments, as a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their client's best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from ECMC Foundation at ecmcfoundation.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm A. Martinez. An opera about Malcolm X opens tonight at New York's Metropolitan Opera House. 37 years after its debut, the creative team behind this production says the messages in X feel more relevant than ever. Here's NPR's Anastasia Silkas. Malcolm X's life and his assassination in 1965 at age 39 still loom large in popular consciousness. But the creators of X, the life and times of Malcolm X, say the opera stage is the ideal vehicle to convey both the drama of his public life as well as his richly emotional interior journey. Malcolm X became an icon to many and a dangerous demagogue to others. The opera's director, Robert O'Hara, argues he was also just like everybody else. I always say there's no reason why Malcolm X became a leader. He had a sixth grade education. His mother was institutionalized. His father was killed. He was a thief. He was a crook. He was a drug dealer. He was a convict. He ran around. It was a pimp. 
There's nothing that says, and he's going to be a great civil rights leader. But he did. Robert O'Hara is one of the newer members of the team behind X. Mostly, it's a family affair. The music was written by Pulitzer Prize-winning composer Anthony Davis. His brother, actor and director Christopher Davis, wrote the story. And their cousin, scholar, historian, and writer Tulani Davis, wrote the libretto. Anthony Davis says he sees Malcolm X as an archetype. Well, I think he's a classic version of the tragic hero. I mean, the idea of Malcolm going through this and transformation in his life, signified by the name changes from Malcolm Little to Detroit Red to Malcolm X to El-Hajj Malik al-Shabazz. So his journey is a classic story of transformation. And then at the point at which he has the revelation about what his future direction is going to be, then he's struck down by an assassin's bullet. Baritone Will Liverman is playing the role of Malcolm X at the Met. He says you hear all those gargantuan, prismatic shifts in Malcolm X's life in the music, especially in its ever-changing rhythms. It's just the energy of it. it never settles at any point. It's always kind of in the forefront. And it really represents Malcolm's story, you know, lots of turmoil and transformations. There was nothing that was just kind of even keeled throughout, like he was always evolving and changing. But X is still an opera. There's time to breathe and metabolize feelings. Librettist Chilani Davis says opera allows the audience to move through the emotions of Malcolm X and his family that we just don't have access to via his public persona and not even in the pages of his famous autobiography. There's something in opera we can't know necessarily from reading books about people, which is that some of the things that people do that we think about and admire later were a little terrifying to them at the time, or they didn't discuss what a big leap it was for them in public. So the power that happens when you can write a poem about doubt and anxiety and put it to music then everybody can go there because we've all experienced that. Tulani Davis says the timelessness of Malcolm's story, especially his early life, is what really seems to resonate especially strongly with younger audiences today. She mentions one aria that teenagers responded to at a Detroit performance last year with Devon Tynes singing the role of Malcolm. She says the memory of George Floyd's murder was still fresh and sharp. When he got to, you've had your foot on me a very long time. Always pressing 
I was really startled and I was like, oh my God, that's why he sang it. Something high school students in Detroit related to, they were the first out of their seats to give us a standing ovation and I was totally surprised. Robert O'Hara has thought a lot about what it means to bring this story in particular into the Met and what the real Malcolm X might think about having his life portrayed at such a high tempo of European art. And it's only the second opera by a black composer to be presented by the Met. The first time was only two years ago. It costs us something to basically every performance kill a black man, which is what happens at the end. It needs to cost the audience something to see that. You shouldn't be able to come to a building with an X on it and see the story of Malcolm X and expect comfort. Malcolm X didn't provide comfort. He provided truth. And Will Liverman says Malcolm provides something else right now. With so much polarization in people's politics and attitudes, he's been thinking about very specific aspects of Malcolm X's evolution. He was a regular person, too. You know, he made mistakes. But I find that one of the bravest things that he could do was be courageous enough to keep changing his mind. I find in society we're so stuck in our ways, and this side, you're on that side, and we can't ever listen or admit when we're wrong and say, hey, there's a better way. X, The Life and Times of Malcolm X, opens tonight at the Met. It will also be transmitted live to movie theaters nationwide on November 18th. Anastasia Tsilikas, NPR News, New York. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next, then coming up at 7.45 on WBUMR's Morning Edition. After a dozen years, Dorchester's Frank Baker is ending his time on the Boston City Council, where he often opposed progressives. WBUR's Simone Rios has a look at his tenure and who may replace him. It's 7.29. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Delta Dental, reminding you that a healthy smile is a powerful thing. Discover the connection between oral and overall health at expressyourhealthma.org. And MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software for technical computing and model-based design. Accelerating the pace of discovery in engineering and science. MathWorks.com. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is on his third trip to Israel since the deadly Hamas attack of October 7th. NPR's Michelle Kellerman says Blinken is pressing Israeli leaders, including Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, to agree to a humanitarian pause in the war with Hamas. Blinken is working on ways to find safe areas for Palestinians, arrange for these temporary pauses in the fight so that you can get more aid into Gaza and get Americans out. But, you know, these are things that Hmm. he's been pushing for for nearly a month now, and aid has been moving very slowly, and there has been a lot of death and destruction. President Biden says dozens of Americans made it out of Gaza yesterday into Egypt through the Rafah border crossing. Sam Bankman-Fried could spend decades in prison after being found guilty of fraud and conspiracy by a jury in New York. 
The founder and CEO of the now bankrupt cryptocurrency exchange, FTX, was convicted on all seven counts against him. They included securities fraud and money laundering. Prosecutor Damian Williams spoke to reporters. Sam Bankman-Fried perpetrated one of the biggest financial frauds in American history, a multi-billion dollar scheme designed to make him the king of crypto. He'll be sentenced in March. This is NPR News from Washington. This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. The tents in the area of Boston, known as Mass and Cass, are gone. They were removed Wednesday. That's when a new city ordinance took effect, prohibiting tents and tarps from streets and sidewalks, with a focus on the area around Massachusetts Avenue and Melnia Cass Boulevard. Previous attempts to rid the neighborhood of crime and illegal drug use among those living there had mixed results. Mayor Michelle Wu says her administration has adopted new strategies to help get individuals housing and health care. Each time we were actually taking a lot of learnings and going at it a little bit differently and adding a little bit more supports and and realizing we needed actually the legal authority on top of these other elements. Police say no arrests were made during the initial tent removals. The state commission meant to support members of the disability community may be getting a new name. Governor Healy says the name of the Massachusetts Rehabilitation Commission is outdated and may stigmatize individuals. She's supporting legislation to rename the commission Massability. The legislation also removes outdated terminology from a state statute. Brockton officials say the city has enough money to pay off a $14.5 million school deficit. That means Brockton Public Schools could avoid a financial takeover by the state. The deficit is in addition to an $18 million shortfall that led to more than 100 layoffs in the district earlier this year. The enterprise reports the money to pay off the district comes from unrestricted funds the city did not spend last year. It's 7.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Music Emporium, purveyors of vintage and new acoustic and electric guitars for 55 years. Every instrument has a story. You can discover yours at themusicemporium.com. The Bruins remain unbeaten in regulation so far this season. They topped the Toronto Maple Leafs 3-2 in a shootout last night at the Garden. The Bees will travel to Detroit tomorrow to play the Red Wings. Sunny in mid-50s today, mostly cloudy tonight. It'll fall to the mid-40s. A mix of sun and clouds tomorrow in the upper 50s. Sunday, partly sunny and near 60 as standard time resumes and the clocks roll back an hour. It's 40 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from a single platform. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. From Amgen, a biotechnology company working to fight the world's toughest diseases. In a new era of human health, Amgen is dedicated to accelerating the pace of change to push beyond what's known today and from the sustaining members of this NPR station. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Steve Inskeep in Jerusalem. You feel the tension of Israel's war with Hamas far from Gaza. The places we've traveled this week include the city of Acre, or Akko, on Israel's coast. Oil tankers out in the Mediterranean waiting their turn to come in, and we just passed a traffic circle with an anchor in the center of it. 
We came to meet one of the Palestinian citizens of Israel. Many trace their ancestry here to before the country's creation in 1948. Akko's residents are about one-third Palestinian, and they include a member of the parliament, or Knesset, who has an office in an old part of the city. Oh, is this her on the balcony? Oh, it's her assistant. The assistant beckoned us up the stairs, and we met the legislator Ida Suleiman, who offered us tea. I said she was kind, and she replied that she often is not, that we would have seen her in a worse mood if we'd come the night before. We had to rescue 50 of our students. Rescue? Suddenly we were in the middle of a story of Israel's internal tensions. Jewish residents held a demonstration this week at a college in the city of Netanya. Someone sent Suleiman a video, which she played for us. Death for Arabs. Crowd of scores, maybe hundreds, waving Israeli flags out in the street. There's some police on the scene, judging by the flashing lights. She said she helped to organize the evacuation of Palestinian students for their safety. It's been said that the October 7th attack united Israeli society, but Suleiman feels targeted by right-wing extremists and dismayed by Israel's response in Gaza. There is no excuse for what happened on the 7th of October, but there is no excuse for what is happening since the 7th of October. It is not a war to smash down Hamas. It's already a war to smash down the Palestinian people. The government, of course, says the opposite. They'll say, we're not smashing Palestinians, we want to smash Hamas. You know what? Let this big liar that is called the prime minister say whatever he wants. I'm thinking about your different identities. You're a citizen of Israel. You're a member of the government. You mean my schizophrenic situation, huh? Please, go on. I mean, yes, I am Palestinian. This is my identity. My uh, situation is that I'm citizen of Israel. She is involved in Israeli politics, but shuddered when I suggested she's part of the system. She feels she's not, and she blames the government for the long-term events that preceded the Hamas attack. The Israeli government, by adopting a policy of continuous occupation, enlargement of settlements, hostility toward the Palestinian people, are taking responsibility for uh, jeopardizing the security of the Israeli people. You feel it was an because irresponsible policy? Because there is policy. no way, there is no way to oppress other people and to expect that you will live, you know, very quietly. For now, it's the mixed city of Akko that feels quiet. She says Arabs feel afraid to go out. There is a very tense silence. We heard something similar when we sat with the owner of a seaside restaurant. We were the only customers. Uh, my colleague, who knows this city a little, says it's empty compared to what would normally be the case. <laughs> Underestimation. <laughs> it's abandoned. <laughs> Uri Jeremias is a prominent Israeli chef and entrepreneur who says he's doing no business at all since the war started, but he's kept his staff on the payroll because he's an optimist. I believe that if someone is a pessimist all his life, he reaches his last day and finds out he was wrong, he the whole life. <laughs> and if you're an optimist, 
all your life and you discover in the last day that you were wrong, it's one day that got lost. He ordered some food as we talked and ordered me to get some sauce on the salmon. You have to take more and more of the... Uh, more of this, like this? Okay. Yeah, more, more. This is what makes the taste. Mm. Magnificent. Thank you. Jeremiah's told a story of this mixed city in 2021. He recalled an iftar, a dinner during the Muslim holy month of Ramadan, where people of all faiths celebrated Akko's diversity. One week later, we had here fire and riots, and uh, my places were burned down. He blamed a crowd of Arab extremists reacting to that year's war against Hamas. The Jewish restaurateur, the optimist, rebuilt and became for some people a symbol of progressive Israeli society. But since October 7th, his view of the war has been different from that of his Palestinian neighbor, Ida Suleiman. This cannot repeat again. And meaning, we have that, to take... meaning that threat has to be ended somehow? No question. No question, and no question of what the cost. Because it is impossible to agree a repeat of living under a threat 365 days a year. He feels the world has stopped worrying about the Israeli hostages that Hamas captured. Um, they are holding 220-something hostages, and the world is quiet about it. They are all worried about the kids in, in Gaza. And the kids that were killed or the kids that are threatened and not going to school here, no one's interest. A very short distance from here, I spoke with Ida Suleiman, who had a very different perspective. Not that she approved of anything that Hamas did on October 7th, but she argues there's an underlying problem of people who are repressed and that that problem needs to be addressed or there will inevitably be some reaction. What do you think about that? I don't argue. I say only we have to have a counterpart with whom we can talk. Israeli leaders often say they have no Palestinian partner for peace, though Israel itself is widely blamed for undermining the main Palestinian group that committed to it. When we finished lunch, Uri Jeremiah took us for a walk. We went through streets hardly wide enough for one car. We're walking past these stone buildings. Are some of these stone foundations hundreds of years old? This is like five, six hundred years old, most of it, but it's based on much older places. He says the ancient city is on a peninsula with water on three sides, seemingly easy to defend, though multiple empires have seized and lost it. We went up to the roof of a hotel he owns, and he pointed out something on the horizon. The Lebanese border is the mountain there. The, the farthest mountain, the one that is almost in shadow in the, in the fog, almost obscured, that's Lebanon. Yes. Maybe 30, 40 kilometers away? 20. About 12 miles, meaning this city is well within rocket range of the Lebanese group Hezbollah, which is an ally of Hamas, one more complexity of living here. Uri Jeremias and his neighbor Ida Suleiman live in the same city, but have different ideas of the threats they face. This is NPR News. The news from Israel continues to change quickly. Stay uh, stay with 90.9 WBUR for the politics, the personal stories, and the history you need to understand this moment. Keep listening.
Coming up at the top of the hour here on WBUR's Morning Edition, a Medway family was among those able to leave Gaza yesterday after previously being turned away several times. Mid-50s and sunny today. It grows mostly cloudy tonight and falls to the mid-40s. The clouds stick around tomorrow and temperatures rise to the upper 50s. On Sunday, it'll be near 60 under partly sunny skies. It's 40 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Peabody Essex Museum, presenting the exhibition Bats. Uncover the secrets of these creatures of the night in a new show combining art, ecology, and pop culture. Plus, hang with a colony of live fruit bats. On view now, visit PEM.org to plan your visit. Natick-based MathWorks is giving $25 million to Mass Audubon. The Nature Conservancy Group says the money will be used to protect and restore natural areas statewide. The Killington Ski Resort in Vermont opens for the winter season today. Crystal Killary is the brand marketing manager at Killington. She says the mountain is getting ready to host the Women's Ski World Cup over Thanksgiving weekend. We expect somewhere between 30 to 40,000 spectators during the weekend, and it is just an amazing weekend. It's not just ski racing. We have live entertainment throughout the weekend. It's just a big party. And it's a great way to kick off your ski season if you don't get out early in November. Killary says the mountain is opening two weeks earlier than it did last year. It's 744. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Mass General Brigham Health Plan, integrated with one of the world's leading healthcare systems and offering innovative plans, a broad network of doctors, and options for individuals, families, and retirees. Mass General Brigham Health Plan is focused on you and those important to you every day. MassGeneralBrighamHealthPlan.org. And Comcast Business, providing gig speed Wi-Fi to help take businesses to the next level. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. This is WB Wars Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. One of Boston's most outspoken city councilors is nearing the end of his 12-year run in city politics. Dorchester's Frank Baker has stood out in his opposition to the progressive majority on the city council. WBUR Simone Rios brings us this look at Baker's departure and who's vying to replace him in Tuesday's election. How are you? Good, how are you? You're all different. It's a clear sunny fall day in Boston, and Frank Baker is visiting a local nonprofit, Youth Build. He's doing what he loves, talking about the building trades. Thank you. I wanted to see your shop like to some more because for me it's like a hands and head sort of thing. So I want to see Baker's departure from the Boston City Council will be a relief for many. He's an old school pugilist, perhaps more in the mold of James Michael Curley than his role model and close buddy Marty Walsh. And on a council dominated by progressive people of color, some see Baker as a holdover from old Boston. But in most of Dorchester, People say they'll miss a councillor they've come to rely on to navigate city government. Baker says that's his bread and butter. I just had a lot of relationships. I've treated people well my whole life, and so when I call, the city workers are happy to help me to help the people in Boston. Baker first ran for the council after Mayor Tom Menino closed down the city hall print shop, where Baker worked for 25 years, many of them as a union steward. Entering politics was a natural next step. In Dorchester, unfortunately, everything tends to be a fight. And you need people to call. You need people on your side, and it's in our blood. It's you grow up playing street hockey and working in political campaigns. Those campaigns pitted him against Menino, Boston's longest-serving mayor. But when Marty Walsh took the reins in 2014, Baker had an inside line to City Hall. 
He went to St. Margaret's Grammar School with Walsh, and the two were allies since before Baker entered politics. But the election of Michelle Wu helped cast Baker as an outsider, and he says his relationship with city departments has suffered. I get viewed as, you know, conservative or whatever. I'm exactly in the middle, I think. This is the problem with the politics these days, and this is what I was fighting against because it became about we have the votes, we're going to say and do and act whatever way we want, and everybody else is going to shut up. I refuse to shut up. When the council was fighting last year over redrawing the city's voting districts, Baker went old school. He said Catholic priests in Dorchester were unhappy with the plan and accused Councillor Liz Braden, who's from Northern Ireland, of being anti-Catholic. And they're viewing this exercise as an all-out assault on Catholic life in Boston. And it's not lost on them that the person that's leading the charge is a Protestant from Fermanagh. As the maps we are voting on today indicate, as the maps we are voting on today indicate... After the recess, Baker apologized for comments that left a lot of people in shock. Bill Forey, who's covered Baker throughout his career for the Dorchester Reporter, says Baker's remarks were out of step with today's Boston. But Baker was vindicated. A federal judge rejected a redistricting plan that sought to change voting maps along race lines. Frank Baker's position ended up being the one that carried the day, ultimately, right? His, his objections to the redistricting matter were borne out and ultimately were victorious legally, right? So, I mean, he did something right there. Baker's council district contains some high-profile parts of Boston, from the troubled Mass and Cass area to the Columbia Point Peninsula, a major redevelopment site poised to see billions in investment. Despite Baker's controversial headlines, his supporters say what really matters is his hand in improving the city. Kim Tai is a leader in Dorchester's Vietnamese community. She says Baker was an early advocate for the formation of the neighborhood's Little Saigon Cultural District. The first time I ever encountered him, he was advocating for a Vietnamese business to try to be able to take part in a lot of these city programs that are available, but a lot of people in the community aren't aware of. Tai says Baker is always there for the Vietnamese, and he's an independent voice on the council. I'm sad to see Frank go because I would prefer to have someone who is willing to kind of go out on a limb and and sort of stand on a political island for what they believe in. It's a rare breed to be willing to do that politically. In the race to fill the District 3 seat, Baker endorsed John Fitzgerald, who, like him, comes from a politically connected Dorchester family. Marty Walsh also supports Fitzgerald, as do the city's police and firefighters unions. Also running is Joel Richards, a public school teacher and pastor who's the son of Jamaican immigrants. He supports rent control and an elected school committee. The Boston Teachers Union is backing him, along with the Democratic Socialists. Bill Forey says it's hard to imagine anyone filling Frank Baker's void on the council, at least right away. It takes a number of years on the council probably to get worn down to the point where you're frustrated enough maybe to speak as candidly as Frank Baker would at times. Baker has no regrets about his reputation as a straight talker, but even he says the district is ready for someone who, in his words, people don't want to fight all the time. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Simone Rios. It's Friday, and that means StoryCorps coming up at 825 here on WBUR. We hear from a couple who each lost a spouse and then found each other. It's 750.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BU's Metropolitan College, offering graduate degrees, providing competitive skills in the field of marketing. Find on-campus master's programs in areas such as advertising and innovation and technology, along with online degrees in health communication and global marketing management. Visit bu.edu met. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Friday morning. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is in Israel, where he's expected to call for a pause in fighting to allow aid into Gaza. FTX founder Sam Bankman-Fried has been found guilty of defrauding customers out of billions of dollars. And former President Trump is being asked is asking a court to pause a gag order in the federal case centering around his attempts to overturn the 2020 election. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. WBUR supporters include Metro West Subaru, where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. Mid-50s and sunny today, it's 40 degrees in Boston. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm A. Martinez. It's been 25 years since the Good Friday Peace Agreement in Northern Ireland. And in September, the U.K. government, which rules that territory, quietly ended prosecutions that date back to what was known as the Troubles. Not everyone believes it's the right move, as NPR's Lauren Freyer reports from Belfast. 25 years into peace here, and Belfast is still divided by fences, gates, and barbed wire. It's part of the psyche, really. It makes sense when you look at the history. It takes time to get over that. But how much time is enough, asks Garrett Carr, a university lecturer who took me on a tour of fresh political graffiti and makeshift memorials. More than 3,500 people were killed in decades of Catholic-Protestant fighting here. The pain is still raw here and across the UK. Thank you so much for having me. Come through, come through. Thank you. So this picture is taken of him when he was... 17, yeah. I'm at Martha Seaman in London, where she showed me photos of her firstborn son. It was about 6.30 in the evening when the call came. I answered it, and it was my son's fiancée, and she was crying. It was 1991, and Private Tony Harrison was a British Army paratrooper stationed in East Belfast. One night, he was off duty watching TV with his fiancée on her couch when gunmen stormed in and shot Tony five times in the back. That was the beginning of a lifetime of misery. To this day, I don't think I'll ever get over it. Seaman wants to prosecute her son's killers, thought to be members of the IRA, the Irish Republican Army. But under a new UK law, she's not even allowed to find out who they are. Most investigations, inquests and prosecutions are being halted. Perpetrators who come forward with information will be granted amnesty and intelligence records will be sealed. There are families who still want answers. Jonathan Michael Kane is a British lawmaker who helped push the Northern Ireland Troubles Legacy and Reconciliation Act through the UK Parliament this summer. At such a distance from the end of the Troubles, the chances of evidence turning up that might lead to a prosecution and a conviction is going to be vanishingly rare. Kane studied truth and reconciliation schemes in South Africa and the former Yugoslavia, where they granted amnesty to perpetrators more quickly. This law halts investigations 25 years after the Good Friday peace deal. 
What I hope is that it will ultimately allow society in Northern Ireland to move on. That's the hope in London, at least. It benefits the government because they won't have to pay compensation. And it benefits veterans because they can no longer be prosecuted. Nula O'Lone is the former police ombudsman in Northern Ireland. She spent years investigating Catholic Protestant killings. She wants that work to continue, and she opposes this law. So does every major political party in Northern Ireland. Can you imagine if you were a little child and gunmen murdered your father or your mother in front of you? If you're a young teenager going out for the night and somebody planted a bomb and killed all your friends? People don't forgive and forget. There is a right to proper legal process. Paul Crawford knows what that is like. Yeah, I have a photograph of him and my mum. Oh, yeah, you've got it laminated there. He was 52 when he was killed. He was a teenager when his father, John Crawford, a Catholic business owner and father of nine, was shot dead in front of the West Belfast furniture factory he ran. It was 1974, the height of the Troubles. Our streets were the trenches. That's where the bombs went off. That's where the gun battles were fought. It took more than 40 years for Crawford to get answers about who killed his father and why. In 2016, he went to a public forum where now elderly former members of a Protestant paramilitary were speaking. Some of them had done prison time. And through mediation, they ultimately admitted to mistaking John Crawford for an IRA rival and to killing him. You cannot bring back a dead body. You cannot regrow a lost limb. You cannot totally fix a shattered mind. But what you can get is the greatest degree of resolution possible. In his case, the passage of time helped achieve resolution rather than hindering it. And at age 66, Crawford now works as a trauma mediator, trying to help others get answers. For trauma, there should be no statute of limitations, he says. Just like me, there are thousands upon thousands of victims who are not going away. No matter what law they bring in, we are not going away. Among them is Martha Seaman, still waiting for answers to her son's 1991 killing in East Belfast. I don't think I'll ever get over it, and I don't have much time left now, coming up to my 80th year. And um, I just want to see justice. The passage of time has produced leads for her, too. A former police informant, now in witness protection, has since written a book claiming that a UK double agent may have been involved in her son's murder. The Seaman family has filed a legal case challenging this new UK law that prevents them from learning more. Lauren Freyer, NPR News, Belfast. Daylight saving ends this weekend. Now, as the days grow shorter, the seasons change, and so do human emotions. Dr. Paul Dazan directs the Winter Depression Research Clinic at Yale. It's normal for people to feel a little worse in the winter. Their energy, their vigor might not be quite as high. But for some people, these changes are really severe. And they add up to what is equivalent to a clinical episode of major depression. Dazan says the severity of seasonal depression can vary because of stress. If everything's going wonderfully in your life, maybe you're going to be a little less susceptible to the darkness of winter. On the other hand, if you're under different kinds of stresses, well, I think you are more susceptible. 
And Dazan says it could be more than just winter blues. Human beings really are influenced by the light-dark cycle. We act like we control our mood and our energy ourselves, but actually environmental conditions affect us. Luckily, he says it doesn't have to cost much to feel better. Seasonal affective disorder can be very effectively treated in the majority of patients with exposure to bright light in the morning. Design recommends a proper therapy lamp and says antidepressants and talk therapy might also be prescribed. And if in doubt, Design says talk to a doctor. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. Our theme music was inspired by BJ Lederman, Ami Martinez. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital market solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at AlignProbiotics.com and from the listeners who support this NPR station. I'm here and now host Scott Tong, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is in Israel arguing for a pause in the fighting with Hamas to allow humanitarian aid into Gaza. It's Friday, November 3rd. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, a Medway family is among those who were able to leave Gaza yesterday after days of their desperate pleas for help. Please save us. We have been trying to go back to since. Saturday. Nobody's helping. Nobody's getting back to us. Plus, Uber and Lyft are paying $328 million to settle a New York case alleging the company's shortchanged its drivers. Also this hour. We lost a lot of people who are in the vanguard of positive progressive change who also happen to be people of color. Boston voters could reshape the city council in next week's election after two prominent progressives lost their primaries. Sunny in the 50s today. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. Israel's security cabinet has announced that it's severing all contact with Gaza. Before the war between Israel and Hamas, there were nearly 20,000 people from Gaza permitted to work in Israel. NPR's Alyssa Nadwerny reports those workers who were in Israel on the day of the October 7th attack are now being returned to the Palestinian territory. NPR's producer in Gaza, Anas Baba, was at the Rafah border crossing on Friday morning, where he saw throngs of Gaza laborers who work in construction or retail or in restaurants who had been working in Israel when the war broke out. They were rounded up by Israel and detained. They told him about 7,000 of them were put on a bus this morning and released several kilometers from the border and told to walk to Gaza. People arrived in Gaza with numbered tags on their ankles. Alyssa Nadborny, NPR News, Tel Aviv. Attorneys for former President Donald Trump are asking an appeals court to lift a gag order imposed on Trump by a federal judge. As NPR's Dave Mistich reports, the request stems from the charges against Trump 
related to its attempts to overturn the results of the 2020 presidential election. Federal prosecutors asked for the order, citing Trump's history of attacks on social media and inflammatory comments in public. But Trump's legal team calls the order unconstitutional and says it limits his ability to respond to criticism from potential witnesses regarding his fitness for the presidency. They've asked a D.C.-based appeals court to block the gag order while he challenges the restrictions on his speech in a higher court. That's NPR's Dave Mistich reporting. The Labor Department is expected to release its latest figures on U.S. employment this morning. NPR's Scott Horsley reports the October numbers will follow a strong month of hiring in September. U.S. employers added about twice as many jobs in September as forecasters had expected. We'll find out this morning if that rapid pace of hiring continued into October. The job tally was taken in the middle of last month, so the numbers will be somewhat skewed by the auto workers' strike. That walkout put tens of thousands of UAW members on the picket lines and temporarily idled thousands of additional workers before tentative agreements were reached late last month. The overall job market remains tight. The unemployment rate in October is expected to be below 4% for the 21st month in a row. That's the longest string of such low unemployment readings since the late 1960s, when the Vietnam War draft cut into the workforce. Scott Horsley, Ampere News, Washington. The union representing hotel workers in Las Vegas is threatening to go on strike. Employees are demanding higher wages, better job protections, and improved working conditions. This is NPR News in Washington. From WBWAR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Leaders across several religious faiths are urging U.S. senators from Massachusetts to call for a ceasefire between Israel and Gaza. Jewish, Muslim, and Christian leaders marched in downtown Boston yesterday. WBWAR's Irina Machavariani has more. Marchers stopped to mourn those killed in Gaza and Israel before heading to the John F. Kennedy Federal Building. Reverend Daryl Hamilton serves at the First Baptist Church in Jamaica Plain. He says he sees the call for a ceasefire as a matter of justice. Over 9,000 people made in the image and likeness of God have been killed in Gaza since October 7th. If it can't bring you out here to stand with us, then I think that there's something that I would like to talk to you about at church on Sunday morning. Senators Markey and Warren have called for humanitarian aid to be allowed in Gaza. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Elina Majavariani. The state auditor does not have legal authority to audit the legislature. That's according to an opinion issued by Attorney General Andrea Campbell. Campbell says there's no precedent for the type of wide-ranging review state auditor Diana DiZaglio proposes. State Senate and House leaders say Campbell's findings back their opinion. DiZaglio says she strongly disagrees with the AG's decision. Boston University will host a day-long regional summit tomorrow to teach students how to recognize the signs of sexual assault. Students from 20 colleges around New England will take part. Tracy Vitchers is the executive director of the group leading the summit. She says half of all sexual assaults on campuses take place in the first three months of the fall semester. The easiest thing that they can do is be an active bystander. Know the signs of, of sexual assault. Know when someone can't consent and be empowered to step in and do something to prevent violence from happening. The initiative teaches students how to recognize when someone is a potential victim of sexual assault and to intervene when necessary.
A historic building that once housed the Boys Club of Worcester will soon be apartments for seniors. The building dates back to the 1920s. It's been vacant for more than a decade. Developers say the site will house some 80 units, all of which will be income restricted. It's 8.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Rockefeller Foundation making opportunity universal and sustainable for over 100 years. The Bruins have now won nine of the first ten games this season. They beat the Toronto Maple Leafs 3-2 in a shootout last night at the Garden. The Bees will visit the Detroit Red Wings tomorrow. Sunny today and in the mid-50s. Cloudy overnight, it'll be in the 40s. Mostly cloudy tomorrow in the upper 50s. Partly sunny on Sunday and near 60. It's 40 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Steve Inskeep in Jerusalem. We are co-hosting this program from different locations around the Mideast this week to hear different perspectives on the war here. On Monday, we were in the Israeli city of Tel Aviv, where Hamas rockets sometimes strike. On Wednesday, we reported from Ramallah on the occupied West Bank. Today, we are in Jerusalem, which Israel claims as its capital, though the city's status, like so much else, is disputed. From each location, we have turned toward the war zone in Gaza, and as this week ends, we can report that some people are getting out. NPR's Daniel Estrin has been following this all night, and he joins me this morning. Hey there, Daniel. Hi, Steve. Uh, I, I guess we should just reset the map for people. Israel has blocked the land exits from Gaza. They are the dominant power on three sides. That leaves a crossing on a little bit of border with Egypt. What's happening there? Well, yeah, that's Gaza's only portal right now to the outside world, and Egypt has opened that portal, its border crossing today, for a third day in a row. The vast majority of Gazans will not get to cross and not get to leave, but this is only open to the lucky few. A few hundred in Gaza are being allowed to leave every day. Uh, international aid workers, Palestinians with foreign nationalities, uh, Palestinians with connections to foreign countries and foreign employers. Our colleague, NPR producer Anas Baba, has been there on the ground at the border crossing every day that it's been open. Um, here's what he told me he saw on the first day. It was totally unbelievable. There was only a list that holds 400 names. We so witnessed at least 1,500 people just struggling and begging for anyone just to make them cross. Or to save their own lives. A very real concern since Israel's bombardment continues. So right. who decides, Daniel, who gets on the list? Well, there's a daily list published. Uh, who gets to travel that day? It's published every night. It's posted on Facebook by the Hamas administration in Gaza, but you can see a Hebrew word unclassified at the top. So it appears that Israel is vetting the names here. And yesterday, hmm. Palestinian Americans appeared on this list for the very first time. And when our producer went there to see them at the border, he described scenes that are just excruciating. People leaving someone behind, families torn apart. He met an eight-year-old boy from New Jersey who was visiting his grandparents in Gaza when this war broke out. 
and now he was getting to go back home, but leaving his grandparents behind. And here is our producer Anas Baba speaking to that eight-year-old, Iyad Okal. What do you want to say to all the children around the world about Gaza? That they need to get out of Palestine as soon as possible. He also met a woman, Wafa Esaka, who moved to America years ago. Um, she lives in Tallahassee, Florida. We've been following her story throughout the war. And she finally appeared on the list to be able to go. Um, it's a mixed feelings. <laughs> I'm leaving behind my loved ones, my dad, my mom, my family. But I have to go to my other family, my husband, my son, my grandson. I think God has his point. I don't know what it is, but this is the taxes of going abroad, I guess, and get education and look for a better life. So it's not that I'm sad. I'm not sad. I'm thankful I'm able to go back home. And when she returns to the U.S.? I'm going to take a long shower, a long bath, because for the past 25 days, I didn't take any. And then be with my family. Love them more and more. And just pray. I told God to take care of the rest of my family because I can't do anything anymore. So those are some of the voices we heard yesterday. Now, today's list was published around 2.30 a.m. here. Nearly 600 people are on that list, more Palestinian Americans, people from other countries. Anas Baba went back to the border, met a pharmacist, Sam Saluha. He was sending away his young kids, and he's staying behind to take care of his ill dad. And here is what he wants people listening to his voice to know. I want you to be lucky and cherish everything. When you go to the bathroom and flush you know, cherish that moment because we don't have that option. If you eat bread and if you uh, use a microwave, you are lucky to have that option. Some of the voices of people getting out of Gaza, but Daniel, as you've underlined, most people stay in. What does Gaza look like now? Well, as of last night, the Israeli army says its troops are now surrounding Gaza City, where Israel says Hamas is headquartered. There are still civilians there trapped in that besieged city. People I've spoken to, and some who are even meant to be traveling out of Gaza today, but it's very dangerous to get out uh, from that city. And I should tell you about something else extraordinary, Steve. Few hundred people are being allowed to escape the war zone today, but Israel is sending in to Gaza thousands of people into that war zone for the very first time. Thousands of Gaza laborers who were working in Israel when the war broke out, they were rounded up by Israel, detained, and our producer saw throngs of them, thousands, walking into Gaza by foot. They were dropped off by an Israeli bus. One of them was even wearing a, a, a bright orange Israeli prison jumpsuit. Wow. This is a, a, a video that our producer filmed. He saw him walking into Gaza saying, I'm coming from death and I'm going to death. And last night, Israel's security cabinet announced that it's severing all contact with Gaza. Israel is sending home all those Gazan workers who were trapped in Israel on the day of the war. Israel's policy for a while had been to economically cooperate with Gaza. Obviously, that's at an end. Daniel, thanks so much. You're welcome. Now, this week's opening at the border crossing affected a Massachusetts family we've heard in days past here on Morning Edition. Abudo Call and his wife, Wafa Abu Zayda, have a small child, and they spoke with us while the gates were closed. Please, please save us. Please, I have a one 
and I had fear. I got him after six months of IVF. Please save us. Please. Since the start of the war, they repeatedly brought their one-year-old to the border crossing and repeatedly were turned away until yesterday. Excuse me. They crossed to Egypt. Their attorney released a statement saying they're exhausted and drained and thinking of family members still inside. Early this week, our team had a chance to visit Israel's northern border, and we listened in the darkness as Israeli troops and Hezbollah traded fire. What an Israeli officer called a slow-motion war has continued all week, and today the leader of Hezbollah is giving a speech. NPR's Ruth Sherlock covers Lebanon. Hey there, Ruth. Hey, Steve. How has the fighting changed since I was there the other day? Well, you know, yesterday we saw a pretty significant escalation. Hezbollah struck Israeli army posts with two suicide drones, and it says it's the first time they've used this kind of weaponry in this conflict. And then a branch of Hamas, the Palestinian militant group, of course, says it fired about a dozen rockets from Lebanon towards Kiryat Shimona, a northern Israeli town. Hundreds of thousands of Israelis, uh, like you know, Steve, have already been evacuated from these areas. Uh, but we're also seeing reports in Lebanon of smaller Iranian-backed Palestinian factions also gathering on the southern border to try to launch attacks from there. And Israel is retaliating with airstrikes and artillery. Meaningful, the sheer number of groups you just named there who have weapons and could do something. But of course, Hezbollah is the big one, the one that controls the ground. So what does it mean that their leader is talking today? Well, yeah, you're right. And of course, you know, this is the first time that Hassan Nasrallah, that's Hezbollah's leader, has spoken since the October 7 attack on Israel by Hamas. Um, and Hezbollah is allied with Hamas. They're both backed by Iran. So there's this huge anticipation to know what is Hezbollah's strategy? What are they going to do? I put this to Nicholas Blamford. He's a Lebanon-based expert on the group. The statements, a few statements from Hezbollah officials uh, and Iranian officials, particularly the foreign minister, suggest to me that, yes, we're going to escalate, we're going to put pressure on the Israelis from the north, we're going to do our bit for the Palestinian cause to help our brothers in Hamas, but we are not willing to go into a full war at this stage. Yeah. With yeah. a caveat that, we, of course, we're in a very, very uh, dangerous situation, at one that is potentially ripe for this calculation. You know, Steve, I think the salient point here is that for Iran, has it's a strategic calculation. Hezbollah has these thousands of missiles, and Iran has used the group as a powerful deterrent with anyone who wants to attack Iran's nuclear program or try to destabilize the regime knows they have to deal with Hezbollah in Lebanon. So the question is, if Hamas looks like they're about to be defeated, will Iran commit Hezbollah to the war and, you know, invite this wider regional conflict? Uh, Ruth, here on the Israeli side, I've gotten a sense of the human cost of all this. I've been in a hotel full of people who were evacuated from the north. I've been up north and talked to people who aren't evacuated and are stressed out by the constant gunfire. What is the human cost on the Lebanese side? Well, there's, you know, over 25,000 people already displaced in Lebanon. Some of them are living with relatives or in university halls turned into shelters. I spoke with one woman, she's a public official from a southern Israeli, uh, excuse me, a southern Lebanese town. And she talked about how she's already been displaced twice by the fighting, um, by the Israeli airstrikes. I'm from a small village on the border with Palestine. 
And she's saying, you know, she's especially cautious about staying anywhere dangerous because she remembers the 2006 war with Israel. And that's the case for many Lebanese, Steve. They remember conflict and they want to do everything they can to avoid getting dragged into another one. NPR's Ruth Sherlock, thanks for your insights. Thanks so much. This is NPR News. Good morning. You've made it to the end of the week with WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, crypto mogul Sam Bankman-Fried has been found guilty of charges, including securities fraud. He could spend the rest of his life in prison. It's 820. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Edward M. Kennedy Institute, hosting corporate events in a replica U.S. Senate chamber and high-tech multi-use spaces. Visit emkinstitute.org events. And Endless Energy, helping Massachusetts residents understand their options when faced with aging or inefficient heating systems. Learn how to heat smart at goendlessenergy.com. On last week's Wait, Wait, Alonzo Bowden pointed out how important it is to live your life so that you never, ever get mentioned on our show. You know how bad a first date is when it becomes a news story? (laughs) I'm Peter Sagal. It's too late for all the people we'll be talking about on this week's news quiz. That's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me from NPR. Saturday and now Sunday at 10 on 90.9 WBUR. Clear skies today. It'll be in the mid-50s. Some clouds move in tonight and it falls to the mid-40s. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy and near 60. Sunday, partly sunny and near 60 again. And remember, that's the day the clocks fall back an hour. It's 41 degrees in Boston. That is Bob Dylan's 1965 song, Like a Rolling Stone. The iconic opening bars were played by Somerville resident Al Cooper. He'll be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame tonight. This afternoon on WBUR, Cooper tells us how we ended up playing on the song. Listen for that on All Things Considered after 4 p.m. on 90.9 and on the WBUR app. Support for NPR comes from the station and from Sony Pictures Classics. The Persian version is a new comedy by Miriam Keshavars on the differences of two cultures when a woman's secret is revealed to her eccentric immigrant family, now playing only in theaters. From the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing a transformative approach to justice that is community-led, restorative, and racially just. Learn more at publicwelfare.org. From the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, Its Secure Our World program is aimed at encouraging people to update software promptly. More at cisa.gov slash secureourworld. And from listeners like you 
who donate to this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm A. Martinez. $328 million. That's how much Uber and Lyft have agreed to pay in a settlement with the New York Attorney General's office over allegations the company's shortchanged its drivers. NPR's Bobby Allen joins us to discuss the payout and what it could mean for drivers around the country. Bobby, so what was the case against Uber and Lyft? Yeah, here's what state investigators found, that in New York, Uber and Lyft were taking sales tax and other fees out of the paychecks of drivers when really that should have been billed to passengers. So that meant rides were less expensive, but it also meant drivers received smaller paychecks. So to resolve that, the companies say up to 100,000 drivers in New York will be eligible for back pay. They'll be compensated from this $328 million fund you mentioned. The AG's office in New York is calling this the state's largest ever wage theft case. I called up Seth Harris to see just how significant this is. He's a professor at Northeastern University and a former top labor advisor to President Biden. And he says the settlement is remarkable, not just for the amount of money. But the attorney general's use of the case to pressure the companies to agree to the kinds of things that you typically find in employment law. Yeah, what he's referring to there, A, is a big part of this deal. Uber and Lyft have agreed to pay sick leave and to set minimum wages for drivers. In New York State, that will be $26 an hour, and that's just for time they're driving, not time they're waiting around for passengers. Now, we mentioned this happened in New York, but will this help Uber and Lyft drivers outside of New York? Yeah, the short answer is not yet, but Harris with Northeastern says using a wage theft investigation as leverage to get companies to agree to other worker perks like New York Attorney General Letitia James did here could catch on in other states. Attorney General James has created a blueprint for other attorneys general to pursue wage theft cases against the online platform rideshare companies. All right, what do Uber and Lyft have to say about this? Yeah, both companies are saying this is a win for workers. And yes, the big pool of back pay money and minimum wage and paid sick leave are victories for workers. But Uber and Lyft got something pretty major out of this too, right? Uber says that the New York Attorney General's office agreed to drop investigations into whether the companies misclassify workers as independent contractors. And remember, this has been a heated topic for years, and it's launched all sorts of legal battles, including a major one in California that is still playing out in the courts over whether rideshare drivers are employees or independent contractors. So it's a significant deal if, if the New York Attorney General's office decided to let that go. And we'll be seeing a, if you know other states choose this middle path and cut similar deals with these companies. All right, it's NPR's Bobby Allen. Bobby, thanks for your reporting on this. Thank you, A. Today from StoryCorps, a love story in two parts. Christine Barrow and Andy Keeler interviewed each other in 2007, just a few months after their wedding. It was a second marriage for both. Each had lost a partner in the years prior. What was the saddest moment of your life? I hate this. I have to look at you in the eye when I do this. Seeing Jan die. You know, she was the person that I thought that I was going to live with forever, love forever. It's strange, but the things you miss most are small things. Cold feet on your back in the middle of the night, and then you go, oh, man, I wish she was here. What about you? After Emil died and the kids went back to school, the first night I was home alone in my house. It was pretty tough. 
I've thought a lot about what is love and what does it mean to me, you know? I mean, you had love to begin with. Why wasn't that good enough? Because I almost thought it that it was for me. Well, I kind of thought like you did for a while too. But I think love is limitless. I was lonely. I wanted someone to put my cold feet in their back. Your life with Jan and my life with Emil got us to where we are. We're intertwined. And it's a beautiful gift. I think at this point I'm supposed to say shut up and kiss me, but... <laughs> that would be nice. Sixteen years later, Christine and Andy are still together, and they recently recorded another StoryCorps interview. Is there anything about me that surprised you a little bit? It's an easy answer for me. Oh, all right. The answer is how well you take care of me. That surprised you? The depth of how well you take care of me. Hmm. In what moments do you think about Jan? This time of year. I think about her constantly. Thanksgiving is coming up, and, you know, that's very near when she died. And I'm still no treat to be around in the month of November. I have similar things with Emil. His birthday's coming up. Yeah, just a few days. But I feel like I know Jan. I may have never physically met her, but I feel like I know her pretty well. Emil and Jan, in a way, had the hard part. It was Jan's job to take the rough edges off me. All I can tell you is I love you. And I want to love you. Just a minute more. And a minute after that. It's a deal. Christine Barrow and Andy Keeler. Their StoryCorps conversations are archived at the Library of Congress. Major support for StoryCorps comes from Subaru, featuring the new 2024 Subaru Crosstrek Wilderness with off-road capability and 9.3 inches of ground clearance designed for adventure seekers. Learn more at Subaru.com wilderness. And from Dignity Memorial, helping families plan life celebrations now so their loved ones are protected later, because nobody should have to plan for a loss while they're experiencing one. Learn more at DignityMemorial.com. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next and coming up in about 15 minutes on Morning Edition, how the Boston City Council may change after voters go to the polls next week. It's 829. There's nothing like live radio with the WBUR app. You can listen live on the road, on a walk, and in the kitchen. Get the free WBUR app today. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Science Club for Girls, growing the 4% of Black and Latina female scientists and engineers and transforming the face of STEM. Donate at scienceclubforgirls.org. And Museum of Fine Arts Boston, 
Presenting Fashioned by Sargent, highlighting over 50 of John Singer Sargent's paintings with dresses and accessories featured in his work. Explore how Sargent used fashion to realize his vision in an exhibition that asks, who creates your image? On view through January 15th. Tickets at mfa.org. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Secretary of State Antony Blinken has been holding meetings with Israeli leaders today in Tel Aviv. Blinken has been pressing Israel for a humanitarian pause in the war with Hamas to allow more aid to reach Gaza and more people to leave. President Biden says dozens of Americans made it out of Gaza yesterday through the Rafah border crossing into Egypt. Maha Elbana is an aid worker from New Jersey who left Gaza. can't even allow myself to feel relieved because... I have family still in Gaza, so I'm kind of worried. Uh, But I am happy that I'm out. The Senate has confirmed the top military officers for the Navy, Air Force, and the Marine Corps. NPR's Amy Held says each nomination had to be voted on separately because of an ongoing protest by one Republican senator. Republican senators are planning a closed-door meeting next week to discuss their Alabama cohort's roadblock. Since February, they've tried unsuccessfully to persuade Senator Tommy Tuberville to end his objection and revive the process of taking up nominations in batches. He says he won't budge until the Pentagon's abortion policy is addressed. The Senate got around him yesterday by voting on individual officers, but doing so on the now nearly 400 frozen nominations could take months. That's NPR's Amy Held. This is NPR News from Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. President Biden and the First Lady are scheduled to visit Maine today. They'll be there to offer condolences to the families of the Lewiston mass shooting victims. 18 people were killed and 13 others were wounded last week at a bar and a bowling alley in the city. The White House says during today's visit, the First Family will also meet with emergency workers who responded to the shootings. Hundreds of Americans are still trapped in Gaza. That includes at least one family from Massachusetts. Anisha Fee lives in Plymouth. He, his wife, and their three children were visiting family in Gaza last month when violence erupted. Shafi says the family does not have access to clean drinking water, and his young nephew is now sick. My nephew, who's two years old, for the last three days, he developed fever. He's throwing up, and he has area. So it's been three days of that. Yesterday, local officials cheered the news that a family from Medway was able to cross from Gaza into Egypt. Senators Elizabeth Warren and Ed Markey are pushing Homeland Security to improve work authorization access for migrants. The pair joined six of their colleagues this week in sending a letter to the DHS secretary. The department has already shortened wait times for processing such applications, but the lawmakers want the government to remove other barriers for obtaining the permits. Those include lowering application costs and extending automatic renewal periods. It's 833. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, partnering with customers to help veterans stay warm by giving coats to those in need. OceanStateJobLot.com. The Bruins beat the Toronto Maple Leafs 3-2 in a shootout last night at the Garden. The Bees remain undefeated in regulation so far this season. They'll visit the Detroit Red Wings tomorrow. 
Sunny in mid-50s today, mostly cloudy tonight. It'll fall to the mid-40s, a mix of sun and clouds tomorrow in the upper 50s. Sunday, partly sunny and near 60 as standard time resumes and the clocks roll back an hour. It's 41 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from the station. And from Focus Features, presenting The Holdovers, Paul Giamatti reunites with director Alexander Payne for the first time since Sideways in select theaters today, everywhere November 10th. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Z-Quil Pure Z's gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. And from ECMC Foundation, at ecmcfoundation.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Our team is in Jerusalem today, just down the street from the old city, and the holy sites of three major religions, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. Those sites sometimes become flashpoints in this region's long-running conflict over land. In recent weeks, Israeli authorities have made arrests in this city and well beyond as part of their response to the Israel-Hamas war. The main focus of the war is a little west of here, in Gaza, where Israel has struck a refugee area for a third day. Israeli forces, who say they are responding to the Hamas attack on Israel, damaged a United Nations-run school. It had become a shelter for Palestinians. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is in Israel today and says he's working on ways to protect innocent civilians. When I see a Palestinian child, a boy, a girl, pulled from the rubble of a collapsed building, that hits me in the gut as much as seeing a child in Israel or anywhere else. Uh, so this is something that we have an obligation uh, to respond to, and we will. The U.S. is calling for a humanitarian pause in the fighting rather than a full ceasefire. NPR diplomatic correspondent Michelle Kellerman covers the secretary. Hey there, Michelle. Hi, Steve. Why call for a temporary pause? Yeah, I mean, he's not pushing for a ceasefire as many would like him to because he says the Israelis have a right to defend itself against Hamas, which carried out that unprecedented attack on Israel October 7th. Hamas is still holding more than 200 hostages, and it is still firing rockets into Israel. But Blinken is working on ways to find safe areas for Palestinians, arrange for these temporary pauses in the fight so that you can get more aid into Gaza and get Americans out. But, you know, these are things that hmm. he's been pushing for for nearly a month now, and aid has been moving very slowly, and there has been a lot of death and destruction. Palestinian officials say thousands of civilians have been killed. Blinken says Hamas uses Palestinians as human shields. Well, are Americans getting out? Well, U.N. officials say hundreds of foreign passport holders have managed to leave through the Rafah Gate to Egypt the past couple of days, including nearly 80 Americans. But the State Department has been in touch with about 400 Americans and their family members, a total of about 1,000 people who want to leave Gaza. And again, Blinken has been working on this since his last trip to the region, which was in mid-October. So this has taken much longer than the State Department had hoped. Why? There are a lot of players with a lot of different interests. Um, Egypt didn't want a rush of people coming across the border. 
Hamas was making its own demands. Qatar has been playing a role in this diplomacy. And now there's this kind of complicated system in place where you have the U.S., Israel, and Egypt, and authorities in Gaza swapping lists of people who are able to leave. The State Department sends out emails telling Americans when they can go. Um, The State Department is hoping all the people who want to leave will be able to over the next couple of days through this weekend. Michelle, it's helpful that you mentioned a bunch of countries there because it reminds us how many countries have some stake in this conflict. What is Blinken doing to prevent this war from spreading? Well, one big concern is to try to maintain stability in the West Bank. He's been really concerned about Israeli settler attacks on Palestinians there, and he's worried about other groups in the region backed by Iran that could get involved in this fight, and he's warning them to stay out. NPR's Michelle Kellerman, thanks so much. Thank you. The former king of crypto is going to prison. A jury in New York found Sam Bankman-Free guilty of seven criminal counts, including securities fraud and money laundering. NPR's David Gura covered the trial. David, this uh, trial seems to have had uh, a very brisk pace. Yeah, and from the very start, you know, right after Sam Bankman-Fried was arrested in the Bahamas, federal prosecutors claimed this was an open and shut case. So, Yes, Sam Bankman-Fried was this new kind of crypto celebrity. He had disheveled hair. He wore shorts and T-shirts. Hey, I think you'll agree with me. He didn't look like any other billionaire CEO. But the U.S. government said none of that mattered. Prosecutors said a fraudster is a fraudster. And they pushed back hard against Bankman-Fried's defense, that he was just trying to figure out how to navigate this new kind of finance, an industry in its infancy. Prosecutors told the jury this was not a case about the ins and outs of cryptocurrency. Last night, Damian Williams made some brief comments. He's the U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, and Williams said he and his colleagues have seen schemes like this one over and over again. The cryptocurrency industry might be new. The players like Sam Bankman-Fried might be new. But this kind of fraud, this kind of corruption is as old as time, and we have no patience for it. And Damian Williams said he wants Bankman-Fried's conviction to send a message to other fraudsters, as he put it, a message to people who think they're untouchable. Those folks should think again and cut it out. And if they don't, I promise we'll have enough handcuffs for all of them. The U.S. government put this case together so fast that trial A was long, but not as long as everyone expected. And the jury didn't waste time. It took just five hours to make its decision. It sounds like this outcome wasn't a huge surprise. Now, the prosecution had a very solid case here with a lot of documentary evidence, but the government also had three key witnesses. These were Sam Bankman-Fried's co-conspirators, a group of his deputies and close friends. It included his ex-girlfriend who ran Alameda Research, this trading firm. And one by one, these cooperating witnesses told the jury that Bankman-Fried directed them to commit crimes. You know, their testimony was so compelling that Bankman-Fried decided to throw a Hail Mary. He took the stand himself so that jurors could hear from him directly It's fair to say that backfired. Bankman-Fried faced a withering cross-examination that lasted for almost eight hours, and prosecutors used Bankman-Fried's own words, A, against him. They poked holes in his story, made it clear to the jury that the scheme was his idea, and he knew that as cryptocurrency prices plummeted last year, and man, did they, that his company's implosion was unavoidable. When's he getting sentenced? 
Judge Lewis Kaplan has scheduled a sentencing hearing that'll be on March the 28th. Now, Bankman-Fried is just 31 years old, and the maximum penalty he faces a is 110 years in prison. His lawyer gave us a statement. He said Bankman-Fried maintains his innocence and plans to, quote, continue to vigorously fight the charges against him. So he's going to appeal. But Bankman-Fried faces other legal challenges. The U.S. government has been planning to try Bankman-Fried on several other criminal counts. It's unclear if prosecutors are going to go ahead with that because this one turned out the way that it did. The judge wants to know that by February. On top of that, there are civil suits. And Bankman-Fried's parents are also fighting a lawsuit filed by FTX's debtors. They're trying to claw back billions of dollars that disappeared when Bankman-Fried's crypto empire collapsed. NPR's David Gura. David, thanks. Thank you. Tomorrow on Weekend Edition, Japan is having a post-pandemic tourism boom. In fact, the industry is so strong that the government there has had to announce measures to ease what it calls over-tourism. To hear the story, listen to NPR on your smartphone, smart speaker, or your reliable radio. This is NPR News. Coming up in 10 minutes, the Marketplace Morning Report tells us about predictions for this holiday season. Sales growth will likely slow, but consumers may spend a record amount. Mid-50s and sunny today. It grows mostly cloudy tonight and falls to the mid-40s. The clouds stick around tomorrow and temperatures rise to the upper 50s. On Sunday, it'll be near 60 under partly sunny skies. It's 42 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. PlymouthRock.com slash WBUR. And Sunbug Solar, committed to being a partner in renewable energy from consultation to installation. Learn how you can build a resilient future at sunbugsolar.com. Shares in Cambridge-based Moderna are down more than 6.5%. That follows a company forecast showing its revenue is expected to fall sharply next year. Bloomberg reports the downturn is due to a larger-than-expected loss the company had due to excess COVID shots. Massachusetts's first top golf venue opens today in Canton. The high-tech driving range includes 90 playing spaces over three stories. Director of Operations John Connolly says the lower-stakes playing style can be a good first step for those interested in golf. And we are actually introducing more and more players or people um, to the game of golf who otherwise uh, would stay away, stay away from it because they may be intimidated. They would never find themselves at a regular golf course. Top Golf has more than 80 locations throughout the country, including one in Cranston, Rhode Island. What'll be just the fourth Google store in the country will open next year in the Back Bay. The Boston Business Journal reports the store will be on Newbury Street at Dartmouth Street. Google plans to sell its mobile phones and smart devices at the store, as well as offer repair services. Two of Google's other stores are in New York. One is in Silicon Valley, California. It's 844. I'm Asma Khalid. As a political reporter for NPR, I talk to people around the country about their lives and their needs. And I believe there is one thing we all need, a news source we trust. Tens of millions come to NPR for exactly that. When you donate your old car to this station, we'll turn it into tomorrow's news, the news you trust. Here's how. Learn more at wbur.org slash cars. 
Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Joyce Foundation, committed to advancing racial equity and economic mobility for the next generation in the Great Lakes region. Learn more at JoyceFDN.org. From the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shinoy. The progressive majority on the Boston City Council has scored major policy wins in the past few years, from passing a rent control plan to restricting the use of tear gas by police. But the balance between progressives and moderates could shift in Tuesday's election as several of the chamber's most outspoken members depart. WBUR's Walter Ruthman has the story. My name is Ben Weber. I'm running for Boston. You know my strong Ben Weber handed out flyers to voters on a recent rainy Sunday outside of Roach Brothers in West Roxbury. He's a labor attorney who's running for city council on a workers' rights platform. You know, I have helped large groups of workers uh, who were being taken advantage of by large corporations or state governments, and I just I want to put those skills to use for my friends and neighbors here in District 6. That seat is currently held by outgoing Councillor Kendra Lara. Voters ousted her in September's preliminary election after she was criminally charged with crashing her car into a house in Jamaica Plain. Voters will now choose between Weber and William King, an IT director from West Roxbury. King opposes rent control and is endorsed by the Boston Police Union. Weber's on the other side. He supports the mayor's rent control proposal and wants to divert funding from police to hire more social workers. I, I want to be a progressive city councillor. I want the council to be helping the city you know, uh, move into the 21st century. Some fear progressives could lose the seats being vacated by Laura and Ricardo Arroyo, another councillor voted out amid scandal. Uh, it's possible. You know, it's possible. That's civil rights attorney Ed Burley. So we lost a lot of of people who are in the vanguard of positive progressive change who also happen to be people of color. Burley's helped elect many progressive candidates as a member of the Democratic State Committee and until recently as co-chair of the Jamaica Plain Progressives. He remembers when times were different. Having grown up in Boston, you know, I think the rule was that you always lost if you were progressive, you know, or if you were the candidate of color. Losing was what happened. It was just about how much. How much are you losing by, right? And so what's been really fascinating and heartening is to be in Boston at a time where progressives are winning. But lately, Burley has found himself on the outs with some of his political allies. JP progressives endorsed Lara even after the car crash, a move Burley disagreed with. He resigned from the group after residents voted out Lara in the preliminary election. He hopes the move sends a message about making space for disagreement. You don't want it to become exclusionary. You sort of want to stay away from a politics of disqualification. In the long run, Burley thinks progressive candidates can keep winning in Boston. I think there's enough of a supply of good candidates where if we lose one or two, you know, there are new people who can step in and try to fill the void and rise to the occasion. One of those new candidates is Enrique Pepin. He beat Councillor Arroyo in the preliminary election by pitching himself as a scandal-free progressive alternative. Pepin was at the Fornax Bakery in Roslindale on a recent weekday afternoon between campaign stops. He says this election fight feels personal. There's, there are people that 
quite frankly say they want to go to the good old days. But that scares me because I don't know what that means. And I know that times back then were not very pleasant for people that look like me or my family. Pepin is running against Jose Ruiz, a former police officer. Ruiz opposes progressive priorities like rent stabilization and returning to a fully elected school committee. Pepin says those are policies he'd fight for on day one. It's about ensuring that everyone in this district, no matter what corner of the district you're in, you feel like you're represented and we're going forward in the history of Boston, not backwards. Pepin hopes his message resonates with voters at the polls Tuesday. They'll decide if they want to keep a strong progressive majority on the council or go in another direction. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. Check out our Boston Voters Guide at WBUR.org. We have a breakdown of the city council races where you can vote early across the city. Coming up at the top of the hour on WBUR, it's the BBC News Hour. They'll report on the attempt to stop illegal immigration in Germany, plus the effort to help children fighting cancer in East Africa. It's 8.50. WBUR supporters include Celebrity Series with Renee Fleming and Inan Barnaton, November 12th at Symphony Hall, with Voice of Nature, the Anthropocene, celebrityseries.org. And MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, powering the Engineering Design Workshop exhibit at the Museum of Science, mathworks.com MOS. When disaster strikes, humans head in to help, and a lucky few take highly trained search and rescue dogs along. We're looking for dogs who have a high nerve strength and high drive very biddable, very smart. Putting FEMA dogs through their paces on the next All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen again to 90.9 WBUR at the end of your day today. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Friday morning. Senate leaders do not expect to approve a military spending package passed by the House, which includes money for Israel, but not Ukraine. President Biden and the First Lady will be in Maine today to meet with survivors of last week's shooting. And U.S. employers added 150,000 jobs last month, which was below expectations, with the Department of Labor saying the unemployment rate ticked up slightly over last month to 3.9 percent. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Peabody Essex Museum, presenting the Salem Witch Trials, Restoring Justice, closes November 26th. Learn more at PEM.org. Mid-50s and sunny today, it's 43 degrees in Boston. The great American jobs machine shifted into a lower gear last month. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Live Oak Bank, committed to helping business owners optimize their savings with a high-yield online business savings account and FDIC insurance. Rate information is at liveoakbank.com radio. I'm David Brancaccio. Good morning to you. The big hiring and unemployment reports are just in. In September, 150,000 more people were on payrolls, but that is less than expected. And there's news the big number from the month before was partly an illusion with a revision downward. Economist Julia Coronado of Macro Policy Perspectives is also president of the National Association for Business Economics, has just gone through today's government report. Hey, Julia. 
Good morning. So, I mean, not terrible. Some sectors of the economy are still hiring. Which, for example? So a lot of, in fact, most of the hiring was driven by state and local governments that are still staffing up post-pandemic and uh, healthcare, which has been a juggernaut of hiring in the last few months. Aside from that, the hiring was pretty anemic. And you can't miss these revisions. What we thought was real strength was eh, strength, sort of. Exactly. So the 100,000 downward revisions is a pretty chunky downward revision and essentially eliminates the upside surprise from August. These job numbers are still good, but they are cooling off and uh, not quite as uh, uh, strong as prior numbers suggested. So in all this bundle of data, you see a, a strand of certainty in all of this? Certainty? I think this report tells us that the Federal Reserve is done raising interest rates. They have achieved their objective, a much cooler labor market. Still healthy. We're not rolling over the edge, but it is a lot cooler than it was at the start of the year. Economist Julia Coronado is also a professor at the University of Texas, Austin. Thank you very much. A separate survey from the government today finds the unemployment rate, that's a household survey, up just slightly to 3.9%. I see the bond market. Bonds understandably are up, pushing the 10-year interest rate way down, 4.53%. Stocks, S&P futures are down a tenth percent. Dow futures are up just four points. NASDAQ futures are down three-tenths of a percent. Apple stock is down 1.6% in pre-market trading after the firm forecast sales this holiday quarter will be weaker, with people, especially in China, not expected to buy all that many iPads and watches. One of the biggest fraud cases in American history came to a quick close yesterday. After about four hours of deliberations, a jury in New York convicted Sam Bankman-Fried, the founder of the collapsed cryptocurrency exchange FTX, guilty on all counts. Prosecutors said he stole at least $10 billion from customers. Marketplace's Nova Safo is here with more. Yeah, guilty on all seven charges of fraud and conspiracy, which could add up to as much as 110 years in prison. And for all the complexities involving involved in the cryptocurrency world, federal prosecutors in the Southern District of New York ultimately presented a relatively simple case. Here's how Carl Tobias, who chairs the law school at the University of Richmond, explained it. It was portrayed by the Southern District as garden variety fraud. And that was easy for the jury to understand, and uh, it worked. Garden variety fraud. In fact, prosecutors painted a damning picture of Sam Bankman-Fried in no small part through the testimony of three of his closest allies at FTX and Alameda Research, which was the hedge fund where the stolen funds were diverted. Those three have pleaded guilty, including Caroline Ellison, 28 years old. She was chief executive at Alameda and testified that Bankman-Fried directed her to falsify documents. It's, I think, unusual at these kinds of trials, but Bankman-Fried took the stand. What did he have to say? It is indeed unusual. Bankman-Fried testified for three days and laid blame on Ellison and other subordinates. He said he failed to pay close attention to what was happening at his, at his company. Now, this is an argument he's made publicly as well, and his attorneys say he will continue to fight the charges. And in the meantime, there's a sentencing hearing coming up, David, that's scheduled for March 28th. Of 
Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Schwab. Schwab offers investors choices like full-service wealth management, self-directed investing options, and trading on think or swim. More at schwab.com. And by Amazon Business, helping provide a smarter, easier way to get the supplies businesses need to thrive. Amazon Business, your partner for smart business buying. It has been four months since the U.S. Supreme Court blocked President Biden's plan to write off up to $20,000 in student debt for most people with federal loans. Now the administration has come out with a new, very different student debt relief plan if it makes it from concept into rule. Here's Marketplace's Samantha Fields. This new forgiveness plan would not apply to everyone with federal student loans. The Department of Education is basically focusing on providing relief to five broad categories of borrowers. Adam Minsky is a lawyer who works with student loan borrowers. He says those categories include... Borrowers who owe a lot more now than what they originally borrowed, perhaps due to interest accrual and fees over time. Borrowers who have been paying on their student loans for more than 25 years. People who attended certain institutions that basically saddled them with unreasonable amounts of debt and didn't provide them with a clear pathway to generating income uh, through employment. People who should qualify for existing student loan forgiveness programs, but for whatever reason, haven't applied. And finally, there's sort of like a catch-all category for borrowers who might be experiencing some sort of extreme financial hardship. For now, that's really all the detail there is. It's unclear, for instance, whether people who fall into one of those categories would get all of their remaining student loans forgiven or just some. We're working through those issues. You know, some of these ideas are partial forgiveness, some are more complete. James Qual is the Undersecretary of Education. We're currently at one of the early stages of the process, but we're working as fast as we can. The goal, he says, is to get debt relief to as many borrowers as possible as quickly as possible. It's the White House trying to take another bite at the apple from a different angle where they might have sure footing from a legal perspective. Betsy Mayotte at the nonprofit Institute of Student Loan Advisors says it will likely be about a year, maybe a little less or a little more, before anything is finalized. This is not a done deal, and the proposals could change significantly before it is a done deal. And she says any final rule could be challenged in court. I'm Samantha Fields for Marketplace. And I'm David Brancaccio. This is the Marketplace Morning Report from APM American Public Media. Sunny and mid-50s today. Clouds roll in tonight and it'll drop into the mid-40s. Mostly overcast and near 60 on Saturday. Partly sunny and back near 60 on Sunday when the clocks fall back an hour. It's 43 degrees in Boston. The BBC News Hour is next. I'm Robin Young. After decades of progress, life expectancy in the U.S. is falling. Lives are being cut short by diabetes, heart disease, and other chronic illness. A lot of the experts that we talked to described our situation when it comes to chronic diseases as like a not-so-quiet pandemic. It, it has been brewing. That's here and now. Listen today at noon on 90.9 WBUR. I'm Morning Edition executive producer Dan Guzman. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. 
WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.